Amen. You may be seated. God is so good. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood of, of course, his own shed blood on the cross. We're continuing our way through the book of Romans this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We've entered into new territory. We've crossed over from chapter 3 to chapter 4. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. We're making progress. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 today. And I also want you to make your way, just tear off a strip from your bulletin, make your way to Genesis chapter 15. Just go to chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first few verses of Genesis 15. So tear off a strip from your bulletin, stick it there in Genesis 15, then tear off another strip of your bulletin and find your way to Psalm 147 and stick stick your bookmark there in Psalm 147. We're going to look at Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to look at Psalm 147 today. Uh, backstage, we were getting ready for the, the baptism. And uh, I was sitting there with my dear friend and brother in Christ, Mike Black, and we were singing in, in Christ alone. And uh, he, we be, both began to get really emotional. And, uh, you know, the British are known for their stiff upper lip, right? And uh, so I was... I was, I, I, I don't mean this in a weird way, it might sound weird, but it's, uh, it's a joy to see that Christ can crack through the hardness of any heart and uh, bring any man to tears. And I was joyful to see my friend weeping, and I wept with him. And God is so good in sending his son to die for us, it can move any man to tears. That gospel has power. So we're going to talk about it today. We're just going to read, as is our custom the, the first few verses here, I just want to look at verses 1 to 5 in Romans 4. We'll read, then we'll pause, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we'll get to work. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we just again lift up the name of Christ to you this morning. It is only in the blood of Christ that we stand. Father, we oftentimes embark on this journey of faith and then pull up short. We quit halfway. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not believed in you and believed in your Son, the only name under heaven whereby we could ever be saved. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would open their eyes and bring them to believe in you. And for my dear brothers and sisters who may have stopped short in their day-by-day journey to live every day by faith, I pray, God, you would kindle, rekindle that passion to walk by faith this morning through your word. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Every quest 
begins with a call. For example, in the distant land of Morador, says Gandalf, the old wizard, there is a mighty volcanic mountain. And speaking to young Frodo, he says that his task is to journey to that far-off place carrying a priceless ring. And he is to cast that ring into the cracks of doom. So begins the quest of the Lord of the Rings. But it's not just the Lord of the Rings. I'll give you another example, turning to another story. When Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey look at the parchment map, which the young hero, Jim Hawkins, has found in a dead man's chest, they all see that it reveals the place on the map of a far-off desert island where there's a fabulous pirate, buried pirate treasure to be had. And they all agree at once that they must sail immediately in search of it. And we're off to the races in this epic quest of the 1883 novel, Treasure Island. No type of story is more recognizable to us than the story of the quest. Far away, we learn that there is some priceless goal worthy of our every effort to achieve it. There's a treasure or a promised land. There's something out there that we consider to be of infinite value, and we're going to chase after it. From the moment the hero learns of this treasure, immediately the need to set out on that journey arises within his heart. And he will overcome any obstacle. Whatever perils and pitfalls lie in, the, in wait on the way, the story is shaped by that one overriding imperative that the hero must get that priceless treasure. From Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, Dante's Divine Comedy, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, or even Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, you hear of this faraway prize and you go for it. It's not just stories. These are fictitious accounts, but they speak to real life. There have and will continue to be journey, journey, uh, adventurers who set out on journeys in order to obtain prizes. For example, I'm sure you've heard the rhyme, that children's nursery rhyme in 1492. Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, Right? There was in Columbus's mind this idea that, hey, there might be a shortcut to India, and even though the rest of the world, the majority of it, is still thinking that the earth is flat, Columbus speculates that the earth is round. He doesn't just speculate. He's got good evidence for it. And he sails due west, and everybody says, you're going to die, Christopher. You're going to fall off the edge of the map, and that'll be the end of it for you. And he sails west anyway in faith, in hope that he will find the promised land, India, is where he's actually headed for. And so the children's nursery rhyme begins. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He had three ships, and he left from Spain. He sailed through sunshine, wind, and rain. He sailed by night. He sailed by day. He used the stars to find his way. A compass also helped him know how to find the way to go. Day after day, they looked for land. They dreamed of trees and rocks and sand. October 12th, their dream came true. You never saw a happier crew. Indians, Indians, Columbus cried. His heart was filled with joyful pride. But India, it was not. The crew was sad to find. It was the Bahamas, and it was hot. <laughs> sometimes the 
treasure we're after isn't what it's all cracked up to be. But Christopher Columbus wasn't the first to journey in hopes of achieving a promised land, and he won't be the last. In fact, even as I speak today, in the great state of Texas, on the very southern tip, a little no-name town in the middle of nowhere named Boca Chica, there is a company called Space Exploration Technologies Corporation. You may know it by its more familiar moniker, SpaceX. They are right now developing technologies under the leadership of Elon Musk to take mankind to Mars. As Elon Musk says, we must become a multi-planetary species in order to preserve the consciousness of human civilization. We're all searching for something. We're all after some prize. We're all looking for something that will bring that joy and that happiness. And there are journeyers, adventurers, who are all willing to go on faraway quests in order to obtain what they think is of infinite value. Today, my challenge to you, First Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, are you on the journey of the life that you were called to live? Are you on the quest that God has invited you all into? Have you arrived at the priceless treasure of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 4. He's been working his way through the book of Romans, saying that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and that we all need redemption. Specifically, we all need atonement, and he has placed it in the blood of Christ on the cross. Of course, he's arguing with these supposed Jewish uh, individuals who would say, no, 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 no. Uh, Jesus is nice and all, but we're saved by works of the law. And he's just spent chapter 3 basically destroying that notion that we can do anything to earn righteousness with God. The Jewish nation would point to Abraham as their forefather and say, no, 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 Abraham did it by works. We're going to do it by works as well. We are the descendants of Abraham. And so now he takes Abraham, beginning in chapter 4, and he's going to begin to unpack exactly what it is that Abraham did, what he accomplished, and he's going to show us what Abraham learned at the end of his quest. We pick it up in verse 1. Paul starts off, he poses the question, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? It's rather an interesting translation that the ESV gives to us. The ESV says, what did he gain? You should know that it's not translated quite that way in the NIV, the New International Version, or the NASB, the New American Standard Version. In both of these passages, taking the NIV first, The NIV translates it and says, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered? What did he discover? And the NAS, the New American Standard Bible, translates it this way. says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, what has he found? So NIV says discovered. NAS says found. ESV says gained. This is a really wide range of words to choose from in order to translate that word. The Greek word there is eurisco. We have a modern English idiom that comes from that Greek word. We sometimes will say, probably not very often today, but more so in previous decades, we would sometimes say eureka. And what that means is our mind has been blown by something we've just discovered. 
There is a children's science camp at TRU called Eureka Children's Science Camp. Their goal is to blow children's minds with interesting intellectual information. Eurisco is the word from which this all comes from. The reason why there's a diversity of translation here from ESV to the NAS to the, to the NIV is that it's in the perfect tense. In other words, the word, it really does mean at its root to discover something, to find something. It implies this idea that Abraham was on a quest, but in the perfect tense, it's speaking about a knowledge that he gained, which he can never unlearn, which is why the ESV renders it gained. It's, it's something that he knows now, which he can never forget. He can never unlearn what he discovered. And so Paul poses the question, okay, you guys think Abraham is so great, our forefather, according to the flesh, then let's ask the question, what did Abraham discover? What did he learn? What knowledge did he gain at the end of his journey? I want to start there because Abraham was called by God to go on a journey, a journey of faith from start to finish. And that is the truth for you and me today. We often look at salvation as a matter of intellectual assent to some basic historical truths that we've been told at some, po- at some point in time about a Savior who died on the cross for us roughly 2,000 years ago. And we think that if we just simply hold on to intellectual knowledge, that is all that is necessary. But the scriptures repeatedly teach something far deeper. It's a journey. It's a walk, and as you grow in your knowledge and your understanding of the Lord, you are also to be growing deeper in your faith and in your trust in the Lord as well. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's a process that starts and then gets deeper and richer and more beautiful over time. It's a quest. It's a journey. As Christ becomes more real to you. We might translate this verse then, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say Abraham found at the end of his quest? What shall we say that Abraham gained, achieved, learned, which he can never unlearn at the end of his adventure? Well then, what shall we say? Paul says in verse 2, Abraham was justified By works, sorry, if Abraham, it's a conditional clause there, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The tail end of verse 1 says, our forefather according to the flesh. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, if it's true that he was justified by the law, by obeying the law, then he has something to brag about, but not before God. The Jews believed that Abraham, though he did not have the law, intuitively knew the law, that he was such an amazing, godly, upstanding individual, that he was so righteous in all that he did, so prayerful about everything that he, uh, that he undertook, that he just naturally, intuitively knew what it was that the law would ask of him, what the law would have expected of him, and that he, would, he just did it without knowing it and without having it revealed to him. And so they would argue he gets the seal of the Mosaic Covenant, the the seal of it, which is circumcision later in life. But that was given by God simply to confirm that Abraham was, in fact, a righteous man obeying the law. And the outworking of that argument is that it was Abraham's character, his virtue, 
the fact that he was such a righteous person that resulted in God calling him out of the land of Ur to go to the land that God promised he would show him, that Abraham was righteous, he was virtuous, and that's why God chose him. uh, Paul, in in rebuking that argument, says, what do we say was achieved by Abraham according to the flesh? If it's true, right, he says, if it's true that he was justified by works, then he has something he can brag about. But, he says, not before God. How can he say that? How can he say that? If Abraham is righteous, and we're going to compare Abraham against all the rest of us, we might come to the conclusion, you know what? Yeah, Abraham's a pretty, pretty righteous guy. I, I don't hold a prayer compared to Abraham. But that's not the standard that Paul is pointing to. He says, okay, he's righteous. He might have something he can brag about in front of all of you and me. But he doesn't have anything he can brag about before God. On what basis now does Paul make that assertion? You'll notice in verse 1 he says, Our forefather according to the flesh. Now that is actually a reference back to something he's been saying in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 20. In chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul makes this after, after, several par- after several chapters of argument, he makes this sweeping denunciation. He says in verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being, and if you're reading with me from the ESV this morning, you'll see that there's a little footnote there, a little footnote one next to human being. And if you look in the footnotes, it says, also translated flesh. So capture that in your mind. For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In God's sight. Now that's the assertion he's made, and then he argues that throughout the rest of chapter 3, and now he comes back to Abraham, and he says, you guys like Abraham because he's our forefather according to the flesh, and you think he's righteous, and you know what, maybe he was righteous, maybe amongst all of us he has something he can brag about, but not before God. You see, before God, he's just as lost and fallen as the rest of us. He has nothing before God that will justify him. That's what Paul is saying. It's like saying, okay, uh, I I believe that there's a God out there, and that, in Paul's argument, what he's about to drive at is really no different than someone walking outside, looking up at the sky, and saying, wow, the sky is blue. Is that a stunning intellectual discovery? Is that like a gripping and profound realization of virtue that you walk outside and take note of the fact that the sky is blue? So Abraham knows that there's a God, and this somehow makes him virtuous? Paul's argument is, give me a break, and he's been making that argument all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 18. That's not what makes him virtuous. Paul goes on to say, he says, what does the Scripture say? And this is where we have to come as a church. We are surrounded today by people who say, you know what, just be a good person. Just live a good life. It'll all work out in the end. Will it? What does the scripture say? You know, just uh, mind your own business, go about your own affairs, 
don't, uh, don't do any harm to your next door neighbor, and otherwise just do whatever you want, and everything will work out in the end. Will it? What does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? To this day, there are even those intellectuals who work a little bit harder at wrestling with these truths, and they'll say, you know what? You're right. We should probably deal with this pesky nuisance of the Scriptures, but I tell you what, the Scriptures themselves are a contradiction because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our Savior, which is absolutely true. And we can only believe in Jesus after we've heard of him. And so, therefore, the Bible speaks to a salvation, perhaps, that comes after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't really seem to speak to a salvation that precedes. And therefore, if it can do nothing for the Old Testament saints, then there's a contradiction here. It appears as though God is changing his mind, and I can't possibly subscribe to a religion in which God has one kind of standard for an Old Testament saint and a different kind of standard for a New Testament saint. Therefore, the Bible is contradictory because God is appearing to change his mind. Therefore, I don't believe in it. There are people today who hold to that, and that is the exact same argument as what the Jews were making in the first century. You mean to tell me that we don't get justified by works of the law? Give me a break. You're saying there's some new standard that we're to subscribe to in order to be saved? And Paul's statement here is no... It's really the same standard. It was always the same standard. You hear people today making the criticisms, I can't trust in Christianity because it's a New Testament faith, and what about those poor Old Testament saints? You say, you know what, that is the exact same pharisaical argument that the religionists were making in Paul's day. But salvation with God has always been by faith. It always has been by faith. And that's what he's driving at. In verse 3, it says, What does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I invite you to turn with me now all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, this is the text that Paul is quoting. He says, what does the scripture say? And then he answers it. He says, the scriptures say that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15. And so if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, we read beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And God says to Abraham, he says, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, Abraham has been made this incredible promise by God. Hey, Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm your safety. I'm your security. I'll protect you, and I'm going to give you the reward. I'm going to bless you. And if you're just reading Genesis 15 out of context, it seems like Abraham does a really weird thing. He starts to talk about the fact that he has no kids. So, I mean, you read it the first time, and it's almost like Abraham is like, yeah, okay, God, that's great, but I don't have any kids. And if you're just pulling this passage out of context, you're like, what What is this? Like, why is Abraham so concerned with kids when God has just said, I'm your reward? Look at what he says. Abraham, verse 2, said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? 
for I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, God, what do you think you're going to reward me with? Is that what he's saying? It sounds like it. Verse 3. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4. And the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, here is the passage that Paul quotes. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If we pull that passage out of context, it's weird. It doesn't quite add up. God is saying, I'm your reward. I'm your blessing. I'm your shield. And Abraham's like, yeah, okay, but I don't have a kid. I need a kid. You see, this isn't really where the journey starts. Abraham has been on a quest, walking with the Lord for many decades. This journey starts all the way back in chapter 12, in fact. Just flip back a page in your Bible and go with me to chapter 12. We first meet Abraham in chapter 12 in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, remember his name is Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says to Abraham, leave home, go on a journey, begin your quest. And then he says, when you begin your quest, when you go on your journey, know that I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to be in this huge country. And all the earth is going to be blessed by you. And anyone who curses you, I'm going to curse him. And anyone who blesses you, he will be blessed through you. What an incredible promise. Abraham leaves. He leaves his home. He leaves his family. He goes with his nephew, Lot. They journey to this land that God promised to show them. It was a physical journey, but more so it was a spiritual journey. Abraham travels all up and down this land. He is holding on to this promise that God has made him, that he's going to be a great nation. And to add irony to the weirdness of this whole situation, just consider the name Abram. Abram which is his original name, means exalted father. And he has no children. And then a little later on, God says, no, no, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which is exalted father of many. And he still has no children, not one. So God says, go and journey and own this land that I'm going to give you. And he goes and he travels the length and the, the breadth of it. And he sets up an altar in the north and he sets up an altar in the south, places where he can worship the Lord. And it's like the Wild West. At one point, there is hardship and, and they end up in Egypt. They actually had to bail on this land that God had shown them. They had to leave it and go down to Egypt. There was all kinds of weird situations there that we don't have time to get into this morning. They go back to the land and these 
these wicked kings come along and they kidnap his nephew Lot and they drag him off into captivity. And it's like the Wild West. It's like cowboys saddling up their horses at sunset. And he rides into the sunset with, with these guys, these servants from his home, and he chases after his nephew. And under the cover of darkness, they lay siege and they rescue Lot. And you, you read all this stuff and you're like, wait a minute, this is not what was promised. God said, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to possess this land and you're going to govern it and rule it. And from this land, all kinds of blessing is going to flow out. And at the end of all of this, we see Abraham does not possess it. These wicked kings are coming in and beating him up and taking his nephew away. And he's riding around trying to do all this stuff. It's like the Wild West. And God shows up and he says, hey, I'm your treasure. I'm your shield. And Abraham's question is, what? Eleazar is going to get everything. I don't even have one kid. Not even one. We read that and we think what Abraham is saying to God is, you're great and all, but I'd really just like a kid. But that's not what he's saying. His question to God is, I've been doing this for decades. And I don't see the promise being fulfilled. Do you, O oh Lord, have integrity? Can I trust you? Can I really put my faith in you? That's the nature of the question. Abraham isn't so much concerned with having a kid as he is with, will God's promises actually come true in my life? That's where you and I are at today, church. For many of us, we're struggling. We've heard that there is power in the gospel. We've heard that there is forgiveness of sins in Christ. Well, we question it. Some of us are even approaching it as though we're just going to cover our bases. You know, like, I don't know, maybe Jesus is true, but also maybe Hinduism is true, and maybe Islam is true. Maybe I'll just, I'll pray to Mecca, I'll go to church, and I'll sacrifice fruit to these statues and do it all and just try to cover all my bases. That's faith, right? No, that's not. And that was never what faith was. You see, that is the Jewish conception of faith. I do some stuff, and God will look at me and he'll accept me. And because I'm not even really sure which God might be the true God, I'll do some stuff for every religion. And others come to this question, they're like, well, I can't possibly know which religion is true or which God is real, so I'll just try generically, in a secular fashion, to be a good person. And at the end of the day, God will say, you know what, you, you are a good person, and I'll welcome you into my heaven. But that's not at all what the Scriptures say. Abraham knew who his God was. And God told Abraham to believe in him. Many years ago, when I first arrived in Canada, it was crazy cold. That was my first experience. That's the first thing I remember. Just like, wow, it is cold here. We were starting a Bible study up in Logan Lake. And I met a lot of wonderful people in Logan Lake helping out with this Bible study. And there was a man there, his name was Steve. And Steve was not a believer, but he knew that there was something missing in his life. 
And so he was attending these Bible studies. And we did Bible studies through a number of different books of the Bible, and I don't remember all exactly what we covered. But it was about a year and a half, almost two years, that Steve attended this Bible study. And then finally one day Steve pulls me aside, and he's like, hey, um, I need to talk to you. He's heard all about God. He knows the truth of Jesus. He's read all the apologetic books. He knows the evidence is solid. And he takes me aside. He's like, I want to be a Christian. What do I need to do? And so the stock answer is, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, yes, uh uh-huh, I get that. But what do I need to do? And I'm a bit struck because all I know is my, my basic, you know, 21st century evangelical Christian platitudes. I'm like, well, you just believe in Jesus. Just have faith. You got to have faith. Faith saves. And his question was, yes, I understand that, but then what? So I'm a Baptist. Well, you get dunked and you go in the baptistry and you do all these things. And he's sitting there and he's scratching his head and he's like, what does God really want from me? Surely it's not to get wet in a hot tub. And you're right, it isn't. And I was just struggling for the longest time to help him to understand. We talked for at least an hour, and I kept just saying the same thing over and over again. He wants you to have faith. He wants you to believe. And he kept saying, but, but then what? What do I do next? What, what do I do And he asked the question, he says, what does God want from me? And then it struck me. And I stepped back and I said, you know, Steve, we're surrounded by people who are very aware of the fact that there's a God. They are very aware of the fact that he is there, that he makes his sun to rise and shine, that he provides food, that he puts a shelter over their head. They know that he's there. They've heard of a heaven and a hell. But they don't Believe him. What God wants is to be believed. What God wants is to be believed. At the end of the day, there is nothing that you can do but in believing God, in taking him at his word, in understanding that he desires for you to trust in him, to understand that what he says is correct, to understand that every promise he makes is true, even with all the evidence that appears to be to the contrary, if you would deny all of that and accept what he is saying is true, what God wants and what salvation hinges on is that you believe God. He wants to be believed. And in that moment, Steve understood. He was like, I believe. I believe. I understand that what God says in this book is true. There are things I don't fully get. He's raised, obviously, in the culture of secular humanism. He's been taught to believe that uh, evolution is how we were all created. He's trying to wrestle with the reality that this God is so powerful, he can create the heavens and the earth in six days, and he's having to unlearn everything he's been taught over the last 60, 70 years of his life in order to believe God. But he understands that's what salvation hinges on. What did Abraham discover at the end of his life? What did he learn at the conclusion of his quest? 
Paul tells us in Romans. Don't flip there. Go with me to Psalm 147. Go to Psalm 147. But Paul tells us exactly what Abraham discovered. He says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, this is an interesting word, count. You see it repeated at multiple points through the text. Counted as righteousness, his faith. Believing God is counted as righteousness. It comes from the Greek word logizomai, which is a mathematical term. You've heard of the mathematical term logarithm? Logarithm is just a fancy way of saying calculate. Calculate based on a number of variables. And that's what the word means. It means essentially to determine by mathematical process or reckoning or calculation. It means to count or to take into account. And what the text is telling us, what Abraham discovered at the end of his life, is that believing in God, though it is no more spectacular, though it is no more magnificent than just walking out these doors, looking up at the blue sky and saying, ooh, the sky is blue. Believing in God, though it is not virtuous, though it is not righteous in and of its own accord, believing in God, God says in his word, he credits and counts as righteousness because we are in a wash. We are in the midst of a world that repeatedly slanders and blasphemes him by saying, you can trust all manner of other things. You can trust evolution. You can trust the science. You can trust what the television is telling you. You can turn to all manner of things, but the one thing you dare not do unless we consider you an abject fool is if you were to turn to what God says and believe him. Don't do that. And so God, looking at the wickedness of the world and the deception of Satan and the constant attacks to impugn his character and to make him out to be some sort of grand schemer, God says, when you believe in me, he says, he credits that as righteousness. What kind of belief then are we talking about? And this is the last part of the message that I just want to drive home to you today. What is faith? Psalm 147. I was tempted to go to Hebrews 11.1 but I've probably done that too many times. This is, I think, my most favorite definition of faith from the Old Testament. Psalm 147. I want you to imagine for a second that by some strange call, you've ended up on a quest and you're exploring the glaciers of Greenland. And there you are in the winter climbing up this sheer magnificent glacier and There's a howling storm that comes on suddenly with the wind churning. There's driving snow. And as you're clinging by your fingernails to this rock face, you realize your life is in danger. You're going to die. And you immediately begin to sense fear and dread because you're anticipating that the end is over. You cannot possibly stand before the power of the storm. And just as you're about to write yourself off, You notice there in that rock face, there's a little bitty cleft. There's a little bitty cave that you can crawl into. And so desperate, with no other hope, you give yourself to that little cave. You climb in, and you look back out as the storm rages across the glaciers. You can see in the distance as the winds howl and the snow drives. And in that moment, you are filled with a sense of awe and wonder at the power of the storm. You knew that storm could kill you, 
And it is still dangerous. It is still terrible. But now you're regarding the storm from the safety of the cave. And so it is with God. So it is with God. Turn with me to Psalm 147. Look at verse 16. Verses 16 and 17. You say, where does that illustration come from? It comes from Psalm 147. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. What the text is telling us is that winter can be brutal, but God is in control of the winter. He sends his snow and his ice and his hail. And this mirrors what has come previous in the psalm. Look back at verses 4 and 5. The psalmist is describing God, and he says, God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Recently, just this last week, they released an image from the James Webb Telescope. I don't know if any of you got to see that, but it's looking at galaxies that are light, you know, t- tens and billions of light years away. And the, the, the resolution of these images is just so captivating. So many stars blended together. It doesn't look like stars. It looks like a tapestry, a fabric draped over another type of fabric, all shining brilliantly. So many billions upon billions of stars. Do you believe God? Do you believe him? He just said that he named every one. There's, you know, from April to to June, there's about 215 of us. That number obviously drops down during the summer months, but I can't remember all your names. There's only, at most, 215. I'm, I'm pathetic, I know. I'm not that smart. My memory, as Pastor Al always tells me, it's the thing I forget with. Pastor Al is brilliant. We are forgetful. But God, he knows the numbers of hair on your head. That's no great feat for him. He's able to know the number of the hairs on your head because he has named individually all of the trillions and quadrillions of stars in the galaxy. The scripture tells us he gives to all of them their names. In verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. So the text is telling us this is a God who is frightening, who is terrifying. And then we jump down to verse 10. Look at what it says. And this is my Old Testament definition of faith. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now that's a parallelism. Hebrew poetry, you have to understand that the Hebrew poets, the the genre of Hebrew poetry, you'll have one line of text, and then you'll have another line of text that is intended to parallel 
or it is intended to mirror the first line. So these are not opposites, though they clearly are opposites. They're meant to be complements. That is, they are to complement each other. And it is by the one that we better understand the other. And when you look at it, it seems contradictory. In the first one, it says that the Lord delights. He takes pleasure in those who fear him. And you get the impression that what the response is that God is calling for is that we would be afraid of him. And then in the next verse, in the next stanza, it says he takes pleasure in those who hope in him. And this seems contradictory on its face. Normally, if we're afraid of someone, we want someone else to come and rescue us from the one we're afraid of. We do not, by any stretch of the imagination, hope in the one that is terrifying to us. And yet, that is what the scriptures are calling us to do. What we see here is that when we both fear and hope in God, these two meet, and when they penetrate and infuse each other, we have there at the intersection of fear and hope a biblical definition of faith. We are to know who this God is. We're to know him in truth. And we, in knowing him for who he is, cannot help but be terrified This is a God that knows the names of all the stars in the universe because he named them. And if you've ever been in a total whiteout driving from here to Calgary, you know that that is but a fraction of the power that is in his control. You should be afraid of him. But when we allow hope to infuse and transform our experience of fear, Not everything of fear regarding our God goes away. But that life ending, my life is over, my death is imminent type of fear disappears while the trembling at the greatness of who he is remains. This was the quest of Abraham. This was the journey of faith that he was walking upon. Hope turns fear into trembling and peaceful wonder. Fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. You say to me, I prayed to receive Jesus 35 years ago at Vacation Bible School, and I've never been back to church since, and I've never given him much thought since. And I say to you, you have not had any faith whatsoever in the God who saves. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is the one who can satisfy God's wrath. And Jesus is the one who can save you. Believe God, for this is what the scriptures say. I started off talking about stories. You know that stories are fiction. You know, we talk about Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We understand that's pure fiction. We talk about Frodo and the Lord of the Rings and the great quest to destroy the, 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 the priceless ring in the cracks of doom. It's fiction. But the stories are speaking to a truth that is real. All of us are called on this quest 
to believe God. And it is a journey that must be lived out every single day. You're here this morning, and you're thinking, I'm not ready to answer that call. I'm not ready to embark upon that quest. And I want to conclude with a warning. You're on the quest already, whether you like it or not. One of my all-time favorite books as a kid, the book of Moby Dick. This legendary white whale who stalks and lingers in the South Seas. Captain Ahab is determined to go and grab that whale and to bring home all the riches of oil. It's a bit of a dark quest, though. You see, most quests start off with a priceless treasure to be gained. Moby Dick is a quest of destruction. As Captain Ahab leads his crew to the bottom of the world, pursuing this whale, the whale destroys his ship, kills a number of people, and one of the final scenes from this particular book, we see Captain Ahab on a skiff in the middle of the ocean with just a handful of men and a harpoon in his hand. And as the whale Moby Dick surfaces, he throws his harpoon into the great whale. And as a result of wind and rain and wave, a tragic ending unfolds in which the rope wraps around Captain Ahab's neck. And Moby Dick, seeing Captain Ahab tangled in the rope connected to the harpoon, which he thought he could slay the whale with, immediately submerges. And Captain Ahab is never seen again. Hope in God. Hope in him. Believe that he can save you and believe him. And you will be saved. But one thing you must dare not do is to ignore the call to faith and think that you're sitting on the sidelines. Because one way or another, you are either seeking God as your treasure or you are seeking to destroy him. And you cannot win. So dear church, believe and believe in Jesus. The psalm concludes, the Lord takes pleasure in doing good to those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Pray with me, church. Father, we'll love you. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would call us once again to believe and that it wouldn't be a trite or superficial faith one that just simply glances backwards ever so briefly and simply says, yeah, I know some basic facts about Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Lord, let our faith be a trembling faith that delights to see you perform your wonders and knows that it is but the grace of Christ that we are saved from the terror of your wrath. God, this whole world says, I'm a good person. It'll be all right in the end. I pray this morning, Lord, that you'd help your people to say, yeah, but what do the scriptures say? Help us to rest in you, to take you seriously, 
to know that you are a God of integrity and truth. Help us to believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.